Hello and welcome. You've tuned in to the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. My son-in-law was asking me about this parable, the parable of the unjust steward. And that was some little while ago, and so it, he got me going. He got me started on something in Luke 16. Even though we'll stop at verse 13, I want you to see how the whole picture of what Christ was saying and to whom he's speaking, and why he was saying the things that he was. So I want you to get the entire picture. Having said that, let's begin in verse 1 of Luke 16. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe, my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. I say to you, Make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Did you notice to whom Jesus was speaking? Verse 1. He said to his disciples. Now, the parables that Jesus gives, and there's many, if we just quickly look at chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus has been giving some other parables, and look at the audience that he's speaking to. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, it's the parable of the lost sheep, the man that had 99 sheep, lost one. And then the parable of the lost coin, the woman that had the coin and she lost it and went out. And when she found it, she rejoiced, just as the one with the sheep. And then the parable of the lost son, that parable of that 
young man that went off and spent all of his father's goods and all of his inheritance and squandered them, and then he comes back to the father. All of those show redemption. All of them talk about the lost being found, the lost being saved. They are all very evangelistic. And because that's to whom Jesus was speaking, he wanted to speak to those that needed and needed to understand that they had to come to Christ, that they were lost. But now in chapter 16, he also said to his disciples. So now this is a message for disciples. This is a message for those that will hear. And as we're looking at all of this, and Jesus gives just under 40 parables in the Gospels. Just under 40. Do you realize about a third of them, a third of them deal with money? How much time do we spend? If one third deals with money, it's a surprising amount of time that Jesus speaks about how should we handle our money. How we spend our money has a dominant role, not only in the teachings of Jesus, but how much time do we spend thinking about that? How much time do we spend looking at how to acquire it, how to invest it, how to borrow it, how to count it, sometimes how to give it away or loaning it? Money and possessions, wealth, it's so much a part of our life day by day. And sometimes it gets to a place where it dominates, it defines, and it takes an inordinate position in our life where it's overwhelming. And so we've got to be very careful. So if you were, let's say, 85, do you know statistics say that you would have spent 50 of those waking years thinking about and planning and dealing with money? Buying things, got to get this, got to pay. 50 years out of 85. Imagine that. So now he's speaking to his disciples and he wants to redirect our attitude toward money. And that's why this parable is before us. He wants us to look at our hearts, to examine ourselves. And that's why he's saying there was a certain rich man. So now we have the characters. This is, and by the way, Jesus is a master storyteller. The New Testament's filled with stories. And I think there's some really shocking things here. This is what grabbed me. This is what got me. Jesus taught from unexpected ways sometimes. He teaches us things, unexpected experiences, I guess, in life, is where he can build on a kind of spiritual principle. Here we have an unjust, an unrighteous steward. How can our Lord take the story about an unrighteous man and then teach it to disciples? So we'll see. Jesus knew he was very adept. He knew exactly what he was teaching. And he's using these analogies. Remember, he's done this much in the past. He's talked about the unjust judge as an analogy of God, that if you go before an unjust judge, how much more should your father in heaven? Or what about that man that came knocking? He's saying, look, I have somebody here. And he keeps knocking until finally 
The irritated man gets up and gives him what he wants because, after all, he just wants him to go away. It's midnight. I don't want, I don't want anybody at my door bothering me. So he gives him, and he says, how much more then shall your heavenly Father? So he uses sometimes unjust, he uses attitude of people that we know and we're acquainted with to then teach us how much greater is our Heavenly Father? How much more will our Heavenly Father? And I think that's what we have before us here. I think that's the story that we're going to get. This is a wicked man. He is an unrighteous man. He's an embezzler. He is a thief. There is nothing in this steward that we would say there were any redeeming qualities. And yet he's being held up by Jesus Christ. This is a story, by the way, it's fiction. Jesus created it, made it up, he invented it. There are no other components than what he's given. There's no other rationale. We're not going to go back and say, well, he was picking from this person or that person, whatever. There's nothing more to the story. There's no secret explanation, no hidden details, nothing to try to complicate it. It's, we're just going to take it verse by verse and look at it and try to dissect it. And it's not unusual for Jesus to kind of teach this way. That's why I wanted to say about the judge and the neighbor and some of those, because frequently Jesus followed the rabbinical ideas of teaching because the Rabbis love to teach from the lesser to the greater. So they're bringing you along. And that's what we've seen in some of the parables, the parable of the lost sheep. We understand that and it's taking us to a greater understanding. So that phrase, how much more, ought to stand out. If an unjust judge will do this, <laughs> if an unjust judge, then how much more will your God, an irritated man, will get up how much more shall our Father? So the story is very simple. He said to his disciples, to make them aware, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. There's our main characters. The rich man and the steward. This is an unjust steward, by the way. This rich man is a very rich man. We ought to know that he's rich enough that he has a manager. He's got somebody that takes care of all of his business. He's rich enough to have this administrator, this manager, this steward, and that steward is a guy who is hired to operate at least one aspect of the business. He's, he's handling all of this because the debts that were owed to him, and we have just two debtors here. Now there are others because we're going to see the scripture says that he took, called in all of the debtors. But here is just two are mentioned. Out of just two debtors, these were huge debts. This was a huge amount. And so people that would have been tenant farmers, they would have waited to pay their debts when harvest came. They would have, these, I don't think, are the ones that Jesus is speaking about. These are people that have big operations. These are people that have large farms because the amounts that are owed is of extreme amounts. So he's doing business with some wealthy people and he's a very rich man, rich enough to have these kind of relationships that he's known all of these other very wealthy farmers and wealth and merchants. And he had a steward, probably because he was an absentee owner. 
He may have had, in my mind, this is her theology. In my mind, he's off. He has a house somewhere else. Why? Why do I say that? I say that because he says, I have heard. And he, that the certain rich man had a steward and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he's evidently somewhere off. He's not watching it himself. He doesn't see what's going on. That's why I think he's off. Well, I've got everything taken care of. I've got managers. I've got everybody taking care of all of these things. And so we know it was a big operation because the debts that were owed were big debts. And the steward again, indicating that he was absent from the land, living somewhere else. He had this farm operation. The steward was reported to him that he was squandering his possessions. That's not good news, is it? <laughs> That's never good news. You trust him. You're not there. You're, you're, you're far off, and somewhere else word comes back to you that he's been squandering your property. Now this steward, by the way, the, the Greek word is oikonomenon, which would have meant that he was a free man, not a slave. He wasn't born in the house like a slave and, and belonged to him as property. This is a free man, the steward. The steward like this would have had also a high social standing, status, high responsibility. After all, he was given the account that he could change the debts. He could act in good faith for all that his master had given. It was all in his hand. It was all right there. He was responsible for all of the assets, responsible for the liabilities. He's the full administrator of all of this business, and he has the right and the power to act in behalf of that rich owner. However, it is reported, it's an interesting word, it's diabol, diabol. You've heard of diabolic, you've heard of diablos, the devil. It's all of that same thing, accusations. It's a hostile tone, isn't it? It's a noun that's co connected to Diablos, which means the slanderer. That's why Satan is called the slanderer. Why? Because he is an accuser of the brethren. He's coming back and he's accusing and he's slandering and he's taking a little truth and he's mixing it. But however, there seems to be just truth here. This word is a hostile tone. He's saying he's wasting your goods. He's using them for his own means. So slander then rolls through these people that this man's the rich man's associated with. And it's interesting because that word is also used in chapter 15. Remember the prodigal son, how he squandered his father's goods. Same word. He's just flittered them away. It's the same word that's used with this steward. It's the same word that he's just squandered them. He's a man in an important position, and he's irresponsible. He's been violating the stewardship of what belonged to someone else. So the rich man, what does he do? He acts immediately. He's trying to be self-protective. He called him and he said, what is this that I hear about you? And again, so he, he's distant and he doesn't know anything about what's been going on. And so the source is not firsthand information. And he's asking, what have I heard about you? Can you give an account of your stewardship? For you can no longer be steward. 
You can no longer be steward. This is a management job. And if you can't manage, you can't have this job. So clean out your desk. Give me your final report, your final accounting. Give me account of your stewardship, you asked. This is not to save his job. He wants it cleared out. That's why things are reversed in this verse. Give me the stewardship, you're done, basically, is what he's telling him. The steward, no argument, no debate. He knows that he's guilty. He doesn't come back and say, wait a minute, that accusation, that's just not true. Let me show you. No, no self-defense, no reply. And so this is two weeks notice. But notice that rich landowner should have just said, you're gone. Why? Because now something happened. The manager gives him that same time in verse 3. What shall I do since my master has taken the stewardship away from me? I'm done. I'm out on the street. I'm in trouble. Now my job is gone. My housing is gone. So evidently the rich man provided his housing. He provided everything he needed. I'm homeless. And what else does he say? Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. You know, there would have always been menial jobs of getting out and digging trenches. Now, this man is not used to digging ditches. He's not used to physical work. He says, I can't do that. I don't know how old or how young this man is, but he's in no shape. He's doing white collar work. He's in no shape to get out and dig ditches. And then what does he says? I'm ashamed to beg. I don't want to go out and start begging. By the way, they thought that the hardest kind of manual labor in that day was considered to be the digging of the ditches. So now the epiphany. Now he says, ah, I know what I'll do. Verse 4. I have resolved what to do, that when I'm put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. Again, the verb ignan, it means it's a sense of a sudden bright idea. Have you ever had that sudden bright idea that it's just come to you? Now, aha, I know what I'm going to do. I got it. That's what this unjust steward's saying. I know what I'm going to do so that when I'm put out and I'm removed from my stewardship, these people will receive me into their homes. I'll have some place to go. I've got it. They, who are they? They, because he needs a place to live. He needs a job. He needs food. He needs some kind of income. He needs status. So he got the bright idea. Verse 5. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? Well, he had wasted his master's resources before. He had misused what was given in his hand before. So might as well, I'm caught, <laughs> might as well go for it, right? Now, Jesus, by the way, is not recommending this. He is not endorsing this. Jesus isn't saying this is the way you ought to be. We're going to get down to the lessons and see exactly what Jesus is teaching. But he's showing this man was shrewd. He's a typical guy in the world. He's going to get what he can get honestly or dishonestly any way he can carve it out. And he summons each one. He's got that bright idea to bring the debtors in because 
He knows that in the Jewish society, let's say I, I gave a banquet for Brother Hector. Well, then Brother Hector would feel obligated to give a banquet back for me or whatever it might be. So you see, whatever I did, people would feel responsible or feel indebted to recompense, to give me back. Aha, now I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to begin to give these guys a huge discount. Let's just see how huge a discount he gives them. Because he asked them in verse 5, he's fired. However, they don't know that he's been fired. They are acting in good faith because he's managed the master's business all along. It, he hasn't been told, nobody has told them that he shouldn't be acting. He's still in that position. So he's right. He can, he can do this. He can take and say, aha, we're going to lower those amounts. By the way, many times landowners would do that in cases of uh, poor harvest. Let's say the olives were hit by a blight or there was a drought or something else and the harvest this year would have been uh, very decreased but yet you owed the amount from a couple of years ago a year ago well it was in that landowners or the the master whoever had loaned that it was in their best interest then to decrease that amount so that you wouldn't go out of business so they wouldn't lose their source of business. So they would take the hit as well. Say, we'll, we'll just decrease that. But that's not what's happening here. <laughs> that's not what's happened. There's no given information that anything like that would have been the cause to reduce these debts. He asked in verse 5, how much do you owe my master? And he said to one, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Now, the word is bath, a bath of oil. A hundred measures of oil, mine says, that hundred measures is a bath, and that's what the original says. It's a measurement of about 8.75 gallons. So a hundred measures would be 875 gallons. That's what we're talking about. At that time, the price would have been over a thousand denarii. A thousand denarii was about three years wages. So now this man has just decreased the debt by three years wages to someone else. Pretty substantial debt, isn't that? So he says, sit down quickly, write 50 in his own handwriting and he signs it and I'll sign it. We got a new deal. That's the way this is goes, and you can't sign quickly enough, right? Oh, okay, yeah, three, you're going to take three years, pay, oh, yes, let's do that. Sit down and quickly handle this. I'm amazed at how many criminal thinking people were very quick to jump into shady deals. <laughs> Crooks are always in a hurry. Get this done. We, we got to handle that. Well, that's what's happening here. Here's a crooked man, and he's saying, quick, write this down. And he brings each one in individually. This is a count that's huge. So he takes a year and a half off of one man's debt and goes to the second one. Verse 7, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Well, this 
can be calculated about a thousand bushels of wheat, which would be, it would take about a hundred acres to produce, about a hundred acres to produce that. And the value would be equal to about 10 years of one man's labor wages. So 20% reduction would be like taking two years off. You're taking two years off of that, of that wage. So not very different from that one and a half of the reduction that he gave to the other man, very close. But these are big discounts. Such deals were done. And they were done in cases where weather had ruined the crops, just as I said, other problems. So he was acting rightly. And then comes the shocker. Verse 8. Wanted to lay all of that out for us. So we see the shocker. The master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. The master commended the unjust steward. That gives me the idea that maybe the master sometimes dealt a little underhanded. Sometimes the master, because he thought, wow, this man's been stealing from me all this time, and now he's just embezzled all this money. He's gotten all this favor to himself. He's lost me loads of money, you know, thousands of dollars of money. But, oh, that unjust steward, and that's what he's called. He's called an unjust steward. There's no changing his character. We know exactly who he is, exactly what he's about. He's not the poor victim. And maybe when we started this reading, we might have thought, that poor master, that poor guy. And yet he commends this man. He didn't praise him for being wasteful. He didn't praise him for being irresponsible. He didn't praise him for being a thief. He praised him because he acted shrewdly. Now, he's called that unjust steward. And the master here is the master of the story. He's, the name is Curion. It's the word for Lord, the master of the story, the same word that's used in verse 3 and verse 5. It translated master. The master says, you are a shrewd man. Impressed. You took advantage. You act to your advantage. You took this great advantage, this great opportunity. You've worked this for the situation. You've manipulated the, what resources were in your power to get to the end. How did he do it? He reduced the debt. And he did that for everyone, so everyone would be in debt to him. Then Jesus makes a simple point. Verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Here we've gone from the lesser, now we're going to the greater. This is what the Lord was saying, look at this unjust, this is how the world is. Let me show you now how we should be as disciples of Jesus Christ. Here he's getting to the point. Here he's going to show us if this world that is passing away, this world that is just nothing, and people are so worried about getting everything that they can, building it up, watching forward for theirs, how much more should we as the sons of light be prepared and building up for our eternity? How much more should we be placing our treasures in heaven? How much more should we be looking to see what happens? And that's the twist. And whatever expressions of 
ingenuity or cleverness or conniving that this corrupt world might have, we are called as the sons of light, because he just said, the sons of this world, the sons of this generation, the sons of this world. We know who that is. It's a great contrast. You have the people of this world, and then you have the sons of light. So if you're a child of God, you're in this category. You're in the sons of light. If you're in that category of the sons of the world, you're just worried with things. How can I get as much stuff as I can? The old thinking of the guy with the most toys at the end wins. That's not true because it's all passing away. It's all here and nothing. So now, said all of that to build up to the points that Jesus is making. Points that are very applicable for us as his children. In every aspect, there's something that we need to do. And you know, we might spend our entire adult life looking for retirement. Building up for retirement. I got really worried there for a while trying to build up some kind of retirement. I thought, oh, I don't have anything. And I remember an old preacher, old Brother Patterson. Old Brother Monroe Patterson lived his life preaching the gospel. 70, 80 years old, had very little. Didn't have a house. He had a car. Didn't have much. But he wasn't worried about what was going to happen to him in his later years. And the Lord took care of him. How often do we spend our entire lifetime so that at 65 I can retire and just be happy and I can go places and I can do things? <laughs> I see you're all smiling and laughing because you know how many people did that? And then at 66, boom, <laughs> it's all over. It's been all those years and it's gone. There's another parable in, in Luke 13 about the man who was a rich landowner and said, I'm going to build bigger barns and I can do all this. And he dies. Or you know what? Say, I, man, I'm going to go places. I'm going to travel when I'm old. But now, now I've got to get on that plane with a walker. All right? <laughs> now, now I just, do I really want to travel in a wheelchair? And I did Disneyland in a wheelchair. You know, a little power. Beep, 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 beep. Not fun. Not fun. Yeah. <laughs> I did get to the head of the line. That's right. <laughs> but you see how this world is worried about doing all of that so when I'm old, I'll just have it easy. Now, nothing wrong with that. That's not what Jesus is saying. saying. He doesn't say that, but he's saying you as the sons of light, we should act more shrewdly. What does he say? I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Into an everlasting home. Use what you have in unrighteous mammon. Use what you have of this world. Use what you've got in your hands for an everlasting home. There was a reason I mentioned that we're reaching people in Spain, in Russia, because the work of this church, the money that you're giving, is spreading the gospel so that you don't know the people when you get to heaven might be standing there saying, I heard the gospel because you helped, because you gave, because you cared. 
You see, we're using what we have right here. And that's what he says. I say to you, let's apply this to us. Then it says in verse nine, let's apply this. If the sons of light are so foolish as in our preparation for, for eternity, if we are so foolish for eternity that lasts forever, when people are spending their whole life looking for just a little bit of retirement, we're looking for eternity in heaven with the Lord. We've got to get our perspective right. That's why he says in verse 9, I say to you, what? Our money and our attitude toward others make friends of yourselves by means of mammon of unrighteous mammon that when it fails, they may receive you. You're, use your money to buy heavenly friends. That's my point. Buy heavenly friends. Leading other people to Christ. Other people that will be in heaven there to meet you. Other people that have heard because of your work and your word. Use your money literally to make friends who are going to welcome you into your eternal home. That's really what he's saying. They're going to be standing on the edge of glory to embrace you because through your investment in the gospel ministry, extending the kingdom of God, they heard and they believed and they can say, thank you. I'm here because of your work. And here we go from much more. Here's from the lesser to the greater, that classic rabbinical kind of teaching. If an earthly, conniving, cunning, shrewd, crafty guide does what he, what he needs to do with the resources available to him to achieve his, his little temporal future, how much more should we who have an eternal future use the resources to plan for heaven? How much more? We're all not going to have that same welcome committee. We're all not going to have that same amount that's there or the same rewards. It'll all differ. So make friends for yourself by means. That's an interesting means of mammon of unrighteousness. Mammon is an old Aramaic word that means of money, possessions, wealth. It's unrighteous. Why it's unrighteous? Because it's part of this age. It's part of this world. It's passing away. It's not ours. Verse 9 says that because it's going to burn up when it fails, it's going to burn up. When your time to deal with your money is over, it will fail. It's only for here. It's only for part of this fallen system. It doesn't matter. Like in Luke 12, that bigger barns, it doesn't matter. It's all going to go to somewhere else. It'll all disappear. All of it is just stuff. Maybe useful, it's comfortable, but it's all stuff. It doesn't have an eternal goal. What are you doing? The question is for the future, what lasts forever? What is it that you're doing? Are we amassing wealth of unrighteous wealth, stuff of this fallen world, or are we using it to carry forth the gospel? Are we using it for the fruit of the ministry of the gospel? Are we using it to share to others? It's amazing because in verse 13, these words are very familiar to Matthew 6 and 19. Because he says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will love the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's almost the same that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost the same wording. Um, so many of the words. And what is he saying? Where your heart is, that's where you're going to put your money. That's where it's going to be. 
We're not sons of this age. We can't take this money. We can't take this wealth, this stuff that God has given us. And we cannot be so stupid as to just try to pad our own luxurious life without thinking, how can we use this for the Lord? How can we use that for God's honor and glory? What is it? One final day when your life ends, money will fail. You're separated from that money forever, and you're going to be in heaven and find out, was it used to purchase friends? Was it used to purchase others that will be there? See, that's his point. This is a hard message. This is a tough message that makes us really look at ourselves. Was it that we were out there doing the work of the Lord, we were telling others, we were using our time and our energy to share the gospel, or we were using our means to spread the gospel through ministry means, or have we been sinful, wasteful, robbing us of eternal rewards? That's why Luke 6, 38, it says, He will give pressed down, shaken together, running over. But there's even more. There's more of an opportunity in heaven than you will enjoy the fruit of that forever and ever. So first of all, your money and your attitude toward others. If you invest in the ministry of the gospel and winning others to advance the kingdom. Second is our ministry to self. Verse 10. I'm going to jump back up to verse 10 a little bit. He who is faithful... And what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. What about our attitude toward others? That's self-evident. We don't have to prove it. It's a, max, it's a maxim. It's obvious. The truth of the circumstances is our faithfulness. It's what character does. What am I saying? Sometimes people say, well, if I had more, I'd give more. And that's really not true. There's the evidence of a widow that gave the two mites. Sometimes we give because of our character. We give because of who we are. It's obvious. The truth of our circumstances are going to determine our faithfulness. Our character shows that, that our character is going to rise above our circumstances, that we know that everything belongs to God. It's never about our circumstances. It's about our view of heaven and earth. It's about our view of the Lord. It's the perspective of a, a captured heart for Christ. If we're concerned about what's eternal, we're going to be concerned with using all that's in our hand to his honor and glory, proclaiming the gospel. You see, it's really about our spiritual integrity, our spiritual character. If you're investing in eternity, you do it. If you're worried about the things of this world, that's where your heart's going to be. We see that another way in verse 11. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? What are we doing now? Where is our heart? Who will entrust true riches when we haven't used them properly. It's a perspective. It's an indication of our faithfulness with that which is just going to pass away. So if verse 11 is saying, look, if you haven't been faithful in how you employed the things that you had in your hand in this world, how is God going to entrust the real riches to you? You think you're going to get real reward in heaven 
when we haven't been heavenly minded, the true riches, the eternal. Do you think God's going to reward you in eternity if you frittered and wasted away the stewardship? Didn't the Lord teach that about the talents and the parable of the talents, the different ones? And then finally, the man that just hid the talents, he didn't use what God had given, what God had put in all of those things that was corrupted. And that's why there's another sting in verse 12. If you haven't been faithful, and if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? It starts with the issue of faithfulness. And it moves from the, faith, the issue of faithfulness in general, just being faithful in little and much, to faithful use of our money. And now it moves to who we are, what our character is. You know, in Haggai 2 and verse 8, it says, Silver is mine and gold is mine, declares the Lord. He owns it all. Psalm 104, 24, the earth is full of my possessions. It all belongs to him. So now it's our perspective. Now it's who do we see has all of this? Who do we see that owns this? Whose church is this? This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. My car, it's God's car. Now when somebody steals my car, my perspective is poor guy, he stole from God. Hey, he's going he's gonna to have a hard time, right? Somebody wrote on the church the other day, poor guy. I feel for him. We need to pray for him because that's the Lord's. It's just messed up the Lord's building. You see, it's moving from who we are and recognizing that all of this belongs to God because we're going to die and none of it goes with us. We can't build a big pyramid and put all of our earthly goods in hopes that it, we're going to somehow get it to go with us. Because you know what? They robbed those pyramids. All the gold is still there. All the treasures are still there. They didn't get to take it with them. Why? Because everything that I have is given to me as a stewardship from God. It's all come from Him. Sons of this age, we expect them to live in indulgence and exploitation and selfishness, just waste and consumption. We might recognize that they're smart, they're shrewd, they're cunning, but with Christians, it's not ours. Everything we have is a stewardship. It belongs to God, and He asks that we would use it to His glory. That's what He's saying. Like Matthew 25, the parable where He doles out a certain amount of those talents to see what comes back. He gave that to them in trust. Everything you have is a stewardship, not just the money, your time. We're not talking about money. You know what? In all of my many years pastoring, I never liked to preach on money, but I did like to preach on give your life because when you give your life, he gets it all. That's what he's asking us here. What is it that can be used for the glory of God? Everything. Even your eating and drinking, it is to be to the glory of God. And if you're sinful in your use of money, then the Lord says, who's going to entrust you with true riches? If you're sinful... I'm going to do what I want to do with my time, then who's going to entrust you with eternal riches? Will God really hear and say, well, then boy, I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to give it to him. A final point. We've seen enough money in our attitude toward others, money in our attitude toward ourselves, and money now our attitude toward God. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other or else he'll hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. All of this is so obvious. It's common sense. 
Here the word is dulo. It's a different word from the steward. Here we are in bond slavery. Here we belong to someone else. Here we belong to him. We're talking about slavery here. 27 out of 28 times the word is used in this in exactly that, that we are not our own. We're not taking a part-time job when we become a Christian. We're not just doing this on Sundays. We're not just doing this a little bit. This is our life, our single focus. This is all that we're doing. And you've got to make a choice. Are we going to invest all that we have, all that we are, everything to the honor and glory of God? Or are we going to serve money that's going to pass away? Are we going to serve this world that's going to burn up? We've got to have an eternal perspective. And if you want to use your money, maybe you want to use your money and you want to pour it into working for the good of the, of the ministry, God's going to bless you and people will be standing there to meet you when we stand there and coming into heaven. That's why we need to ask and look at ourselves and look at what am I doing? This language is very strong. I can't serve both. I can't be on both sides. I'm going to either hate the one and love the other, or I'm going to despise the one and love the other. It's very strong language, and that's what he is getting to at this point. What about us? We ask ourselves, instead of feeling bad about passages like this, instead of worrying about passages like this and what the Lord is, then it causes us to look at ourselves. It was said, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority thought that's really true. And then also another commentator said, these two are diametrically opposed, God and money. One commands you to walk by faith, the other to walk by sight. One to be humble, the other to be proud. One to set your affection on things above, the other to set your perspective on things of the earth. One to look at the things that are unseen and eternal, the other to look at the things which are seen and temporal. One to have a conversation in heaven, the other to cleave to the dust. One to be careful for nothing, the other to be all of anxiety. One to be content with such things as you have, the other enlarge your desires. One to be ready to distribute, the other to withhold. One to look at the things of others, the other to look at only one's own things. One to seek the happiness of the creator, the other to seek the happiness in the creature. It's plain. You cannot serve two such masters. Possession of wealth is a gift of God, but it is a stewardship. Whatever you have, you are a steward as a child of God. That's why I wanted us to see that he was talking to his disciples. He's talking to us. Well, the climax in verse 14, and we're going to get to that, Lord willing, next week. The Pharisees and the scribes begin to deride him. There's an old hymn, Be Thou My Vision. I wish I could sing. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. I hope that's what you can say. I hope that you could say, be thou my vision. You, Lord, be that vision. Let me keep my eyes and 
my heart focused on the things above. Let me keep my heart focused on you, that others might be drawn to our eternal King. Are we eternally minded? This world's passing away. It's just here and gone. We are passing away. We're here for a while, and then we're going to a better, a greater home. I'm glad I've, this week I've had a couple of my grandsons that are worried about where they're going to spend eternity. I'm so glad. I want them to be worried about where they spend their eternity because I want them to live their life in this world to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. That when, when they go, when our Lord returns, that they'll hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thank you for joining us today and we hope you enjoyed the message. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions or perhaps you have questions on a different topic, let us know. Our information is given on the website or can reach us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. The angel upon the tombstone said he is risen just as he said. is